you know, there's a, there's, do you want to, do you want to train at the caveman level, which is not the most efficient techniques all the time, or do you want to train and using superior techniques? And there's a good chance you're going to fall back on that because again, you're, you're the whole idea of training is to imprint, you know, those mechanics in your mind so that you, you do them subconsciously. Hey there. Welcome to Everyday Marksman, episode number 24. I'm your host, Matt Robertson. On today's episode, I am talking to a awesome guest who is both a competitive shooter and longtime Special Forces member. But I'll talk about him in a second. First, if you are new to the show, then welcome. This is the Everyday Marksman. Our website is everydaymarksman.co, and our mission is tactical skills for adventurous life. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that I am here to help everyday people just like you learn and grow their skill sets in both shooting and marksmanship and survival and physical fitness. And in these days, as I'm recording this, we are dealing with a pandemic. And this is exactly the kind of situation that I think of when I say that I want people to be able to go out there and be confident and take care of their families and their communities. So I'm happy you're here. Now, this episode is brought to you by me. That's right. I am sponsoring my own episode because otherwise we don't take any sponsors here. We're totally user-funded by people just like you. But I am sponsoring this one with our community, the Marksman's Quarter. Now, I mentioned this last week. The Marksman's Quarter is about to open here at the end of March 2020. We're throwing our doors open so you can join our merry band of Marksmen. That you have to act fast because our doors are only going to open a few times per year. So to get on the waiting list, go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash community. But what is the Marksman's Quarter? I am so glad you asked. Our community is a place focused on action so that people like you can connect with other marksmen also working on their own goals and their capabilities, and you can help each other out. Either ask questions, hold each other accountable towards the challenges, and learn and grow together. That is the goal, and I would love to have you there. Now let's talk about today's guest. Jeff Gerwich is a 26-year veteran of the United States Army, with 19 of those years being in Special Forces. He's also been a competitive shooter for over 15 years. He has combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. He writes for SWAT magazine as well as Defense Review. And he competes in USPSA, IDPA, and PRS. So the reason I had him on today was because who else has such good insight into bridging the gap between competitive shooting and tactical shooting? What's similar, what's different, and what can each side learn from the other? All right, that is enough out of me. Let's get on to the interview with Jeff. All right, hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to start off with a question here. You've got a thorough background in both combat, with a lot of combat tours, as well as competition shooting. So I think you're probably the perfect person for me to start off with this question. How do you see the relationship between competition and defensive shooting? It's pretty easy. If you want the best weapon handling skills and marksmanship skills, you need to shoot competition. Tactics aside, 
uh, you know, competition is a game, but to do well in competition, you have to be able to shoot fast and accurately, and you have to have the best weapon manipulations techniques to keep your gun running. And that's what you can bring into tactical shooting to be able to outshoot your opponents. I know there's people who will go into saying, well, that's a gamer technique. Um, is that is that ever really a, like a bad thing or is that ever a good thing? Like, How does that work out? Well, actually, when I first started shooting competition uh, while in special forces, actually, I got poo-pooed by a lot of my peers because in the early 2000s, shooting competition was seen as a total game. Uh, But actually, you know, your best shooters in special forces now are all guys that have a, a, a deep competitive background and a lot of your best tactical trainers you know, shoot competition on on the side. So there's obviously there's something to, you know, shooting matches and correlating over to these great marksmanship skills that a lot of these, you know, guys who have strictly a combat background hold. So if I go back, so in your background, it says, you know, you were 19 years of special forces, 26 in the army and 15 doing competition. So where in that timeline did you start shooting competition? Well, it's, it's actually been a, over 15 years now. Actually, I started competitive shooting right around 2001. And it's actually, I was at Fort Bragg attending one of our special forces shooting courses, you know, and I was a lot younger back then. And, you know, I had the mentality of, you know, I'm the tip of the spear, you know, I'm a, I'm a Green Beret. I am a complete badass. And when I went to my first USPSA match in North Carolina, I got crushed. I mean, completely crushed by all these civilian shooters. And it, you know, really made me ask, you know, how are these people doing it? Why, you know, I'm so great at tactical shooting been through all these, you know, official military training, but then I go to a match and, you know, I'm getting, you know, outshot by civilians, uh, you know, and people with zero tactical training. How did that, how did that affect your ego? Well, you know, that made me, you know, delve right into, you know, what techniques are they using and how can I apply them to the job? And I've never had a problem, you know, shooting a competitive stage, realizing it's just a course of fire, it's a game, but the techniques that I'm using to now do well in these stages, a lot of them roll right into, you know, tactical shooting. So again, it goes back to weapons manipulation. You know, there's two or three ways, you know, to put your slide back into battery after a reload. Well, competitive shooters all do it a certain way because they found out it's the fastest. So why not take that one technique and now apply it into your tactical shooting? And there's a lot of techniques uh, that that you can draw from competitive shooting and roll right into tactical shooting because, again, in a tactical scenario, it's all about shooting as fast and accurately as you can and keeping your weapon going uh, during that engagement. So you mentioned... Um, that all the competitive shooters were doing a certain slide release technique. W- which one was it out of curiosity? Uh, that is the, you know, using the, the, the uh, slide release or slide stop lever, even on a Glock, uh, which is what I carry now. Uh, gloves, no gloves. I have no problem, you know, hitting that slide stop. It's a lot faster than doing the slingshot method, which is, you know, and the, you know, the palm down uh, or, you know, super positive, a method of racking the slide with the palm down, pulling it back for uh, towards you, which you know a lot of tactical shooters will say it's gross motor movements, and under stress you're going to result to you know to caveman. So you need to use simple motions. But really, if you train 
uh, when you are in that, you know, that life or death scenario, you're going to fall back on your training. So why not train using the best and most efficient techniques? It's funny. I feel like you stole that question right, right away before I was going to ask it, which was, what do you think about the whole idea of the caveman gross motor skills versus fine motor skills under stress? Uh, there is, there's definitely something to it. The first time I was ever engagement or a shot at a live human being, I had, and I recognized it moments after it happened. I recognized I had tunnel vision. I had an EOTech. I was, I remember looking through the EOTech, not seeing the red dot and circle at all. But as I was shooting, I was trying to spot hits on the bad guys rather than really looking for a point of aim in the bad guys. And I wasn't paying attention to anything going on to the left and right of me until after, you know, the first few shots I took. And then, you know, I kind of came back to reality and I instantly realized, hey, I was going through some sort of, you know, tunnel vision or, or really, you know, target fixation because your body's going to naturally want to focus on the you know, thing that can kill you. But really after that, as far as, you know, coming unglued and you know, having to rely on gross motor skills, I didn't experience that. You know, I kept my weapon running. It's not like I could hit the, uh, you know, the bolt release on my M4 at the time. I couldn't do fine manipulations. I didn't experience any of that. Because uh, again, when it came to actually keeping my gun running and going through, you know, what I needed to do, you know, I fell back on my training. So there's a, there's a statistic and you know how statistics work on the internet. Um, but I had read somewhere a long time ago that the expectation is when you're under stress, you're going to fall back to 50% of whatever you could do when you're not under stress. Does that seem reasonable to you? Uh, there is some merit to that. Uh, you know, I experienced a little bit of that again with my first engagement. I recognized I had tunnel vision right out the gate, but you know, there's, there's, do you want to, do you want to train at the caveman level, which is not the most efficient techniques all the time, or do you want to train using superior techniques? And there's a good chance you're going to fall back on that because again, you're, you're the whole idea of training is to imprint, you know, those mechanics in your mind so that you, you do them subconsciously. So if we if we all resulted to caveman all the time, then you would have 10,000 NASCAR crashes because guys under stress would be rolling the cars and, you know, everything else requires high performance, you know, because for some reason it, it just exists in the tactical world that, oh, you're always going to go to caveman, 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 train at caveman. No, why don't you train using the best techniques? And there's a good chance. And it's been shown a, a lot of, you know, you can watch a lot of videos of cops in their very first engagements perfect stance, perfect grip. And, you know, they're laying lead into the targets the right way. And they're, they're falling back on their training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, you default to what you have practiced the most. So even like, I think the way I always took it was if you're, if you're going to resort down to 50% of what you could do normally, well, if you've already trained to a much superior technique, like you're saying, or a higher level, then you're still in a better position than you would have been otherwise. But yes, I, I totally agree. So you should be familiar with all all the different techniques out there and, you know, obviously, you know, know the gross motor skill techniques like racking the slide with palm down and things like that. But, you know, when I go out and train, uh, I'm training using the best techniques that are the most efficient and fast that keep my gun running and my sights on target. So then aside from just the actual training piece of that, uh, you know, everybody loves talking gear questions. Um, so with all the background that you've got, have you ever seen a lot of bleed over from competition gear configurations to what happens at, at the tactical side? Uh, yes, uh, there's 
definitely a bleed over both ways from tactical into the you know civilian competition world and the you know competition world into the military and really that's that's been going on probably the last 10 or 15 years you know the first dual optic that came out that i saw was you know an, an acog and i think it had a doctor site on top and that was a military thing and it was immediately picked up by three gun but then, you know, in the last 10 years, three guns taken the, the piggyback mounted optic and they put it off to the side for a 45 degree mount, which is way faster, uh, better height above bore. So you, now it's, a, you know, that's taken from the competitive shooting world. And the last two years, if you look at a lot of soft operators guns, they're running a 45 degree offset mount now with a low power available optic, which is, a, you know, a three gun open setup. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah definitely a lot of crossover in between. And uh, it, again, it goes to, hey, if it works great and it's allowing people to win in competitive shooting, you know, why not you know, apply that same technology and techniques in combat? If it's, you know, if it's proven rugged and sturdy, then yeah, I'm, all, I'm all for technological advances that can, again, increase your chances to defeat the bad guy. And you mentioned the, the variables in there. So obviously, I, I, full disclosure, I did a bit of homework ahead of this one. So there was an Instagram post you had made with a, an issued M4 with that Elcan on it, the Elcan Spectre DR, the one to four. And uh, you had said it was totally obsolete by today's standards. So I'm kind of curious to, if you could expand on that a little bit. Uh, you know, one to four scopes, their time was around what, 2007, 2008. And then it was around 2010 ish, I believe is, uh, you know, when the vortex kicked out their one to six razor and you know, now we're into the, we're into one to eights and one to tens in a practical size model. And they, it's not that you're increasing the range of the of the M16 or the M4 or the five side six round, but you're increasing the shooter's capability to get a pinpoint precision aim on a target at range. So you take the one to four L can. Yes, I can make a 400 meter shot using a one to four L can and a human size target. Now you give me a one to eight scope or a one to six. Now I can get a precise aiming point uh, for my bolt impact on that same target at that same distance, just because I have the more magnification. So instead of aiming, you know, center high chest with the one to four and hoping I get somewhere in the chest. Well, now I know with a proper hold, hey, if I want to, you know, get a headshot or get them right in the heart, uh, you know, that more magnification is going to allow me that because of, you know, better precise aiming point through the magnification. So do you think there's, I know the trend has gone, there's the one to four, like you said, that was 10 years ago. Um, and then there was the one to six and then I'll run to one to eight. And I think is it Vortex or Trigicon right at SHOT Show is putting out a one to 10 now. Uh, do you think that trend is like kind of getting ridiculous or is there a sweet spot that the, the average person should be looking at for kind of looking? I have not played with the one to tens yet. Uh, you know, one to eights I've played with and I'm a fan of it. Uh, is it going to get to a point where, you know, it's just too much again, you know, your, your average, you know, rifle, everybody's shooting is an AR style platform. Uh, so is there a point there's too much magnification? Yes. But where I see it going is, you know, your one to tens, you know, I, I believe the Vortex Razor 1 to 10 is probably over two grand. That's just me guessing. I haven't looked at the price point on it. Uh, but, you know, what we're going to see in the future is we're going to see cheaper 1 to 10s that are almost just as reliable. You know, I'd love to see Vortex come out with a PST 1 to 8. Right now, they only offer a 1 to 8 and a Strike Eagle. So maybe they'll come out with a, you know, PST 1 to 8 
And I think that right now I I've got a Strike Eagle one to eight. I love it for three gun. I think it's a perfect amount of magnification, and I'm cranking down to one power when I need to to shoot fast and up close. And again, for you know four or five hundred meter shots, I get a, a more precise aiming point than using a one to six, and definitely over you know an old one to four. So something you mentioned with the Ranger, you said four to five hundred meters. Um, you know, a while ago you'd written for I think Defense Review. You're talking about some of your time in Afghanistan. And that a, most of your engagements were beyond 300 meters. Uh, and you were talking to that 300, even four to five, but very few inside of 100. Um, how did yes. that affect how you kind of configure your stuff now? Well, you know, that's why uh, I, I, you know, I ran a one to four for two trips only because uh, I just hadn't gotten around to buying something more powerful. And then, of course, my third trip uh, back in 2015, my last deployment, you know, I ran a VCOG 1-6. to six, And again, 1-6 to six, that was combat reliable. There was only a few at the time. And I did that just because the tour previously that I had in 2014, I was taking 500-meter shots with my LCAN, totally doable. But I was like, you know what? More magnification would make these 500-meter shots a lot easier. So that was a conscious decision, and my VCOG stayed on six power the entire tour. I never ended up dialing it down. I had an offset red dot, but you know, in my situation during my last tour, uh, it's true. I all my targets. I think the closest engagement I, I took was probably around 200 yards. Now I had teammates, you know, taking you know CQB style shots, uh, shots at 100, uh, but as far as targets that presented to me, uh, nothing was closer than 200. And I think what's interesting about kind of that situation to me is, you know, not, not being a combat guy myself, but, you know, I'm a data nerd. So when I go back and read the research from like Norman Hitchman in the 50s of saying, hey, this is why a 5.56 is an ideal cartridge. Part of it was because we never really engaged past 300 yards. So it's interesting to hear that experience being, well, this is turning the whole theory on its head. Uh, yeah, and I, and I, my last tour, you know, I had the option of carrying a 308. They're they're on teams in the form of, uh, you know, the M110s and the uh, Scar heavies, but I was I specifically stayed with 556 just because of ammo capacity. I can carry 300 rounds of a 556 on me, as opposed to say, you know, 180 or 200 rounds of of 308, and I just wanted P for plenty. Mm-hmm. So here's kind of a follow-on question to, to this gear question because uh, a couple times you've mentioned the value and you've written about it too the a dual optic you know an open setup where you've got the offset red dot as well as a magnified optic and you mentioned the vcog you left it on six and kept the offset for someone who's on a budget do you think it's a it's a practical solution to do a maybe fixed power optic and then the offset or the offset red dot it is um uh, you know I went, you know, I'm all about magnification due to the operating area I was in, which, you know, Afghanistan, you're going to take 500 meter shots because the enemy uses terrain. That's how they fight. Now, if I transplant myself to where I live here in North Carolina, I live in a rural area. The farthest shots I could probably expect if I, you know, if I was running the streets, running and gunning, was probably 300 yards. So would a fixed, you know, four power ACOG do me well? Yes, it would. And having offset red dot would, again, allow me that CQB option. So uh, you do still have to look at your operating environment. If you're going into an unknown, though, like if uh, the Army recalled me back to service and they said, hey, you're going to deploy to combat, but we don't know where you're going to yet, I would I would go for my VCOG and offset red dot 
if I could get a VCOG one to 10, then I would throw that on my gun for the extra magnification. Cause I'd rather go into an unknown situation with the most capabilities that I can pile on to the rifle that I'm going to fight with. Mm-hmm. Now, just out of curiosity, we're talking about Afghanistan, but how did that contrast with what you saw in Iraq? Well, you know, it was, it was it was different eras, and because it was different eras, that drove the technology and what we had on our guns. So I, I did three tours of Iraq, the invasion, and two follow-on tours. My last one was in 2005. So we had soft mod block one at the time. So our only magnified optics were fixed-powered ACOGs, and you know, because the enemy is completely different in Iraq where there is because it's a flat country, they don't have the, in the mountains to hide in. They fight in the city. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a CTP fight. And that's why a majority, if you look back at old photos from, you know, Iraq time, everybody's running aim points uh, just because, hey, we're fighting the cities. The enemy does not use the rural areas. But if I could go back in time and, and take an ACOG and an offset red dot, I would have done that because, just because you're in an urban setting does not mean you're going you're not going to have long shots. You know, you can have two or 300 meter shots easy inside of a city, you know, from rooftop to rooftop, or you're, you're taking a building. Now you're shooting out of a building at targets coming at you. So I definitely had the technology existed and was available. I definitely would have jumped on it. Okay. Aside just from the gun part of this, I'm actually curious too about just gear configuration. You, you've written a lot of good articles and put up some good Instagram posts about uh, just the way your equipment was configured. Um, has competition influenced that as well? Like the way you have like your vest or your belt or, or your plate carrier or anything like that? Competition is is definitely a factor. Uh, it was, you know, one of the main reasons why, you know, special operations went with the Daniel Defense RIS-2 rail uh, because, you know, with the M4, you know, had the Knights Armament rail and the soft mod block one. Well, as, as the, the methods of holding a rifle evolved and we end up copying three gunners with the, you know, more extended forearm, you can call it a C-clamp grip or a three gunner style grip. You need more rail space. And that was a, that was a demand of, of, of SF dudes who wanted, you know, looking at, you know, how guys are shooting three gun and their more extended rails, which allowed them more leeway where to put their hand. That was one of the direct, you know, things that came over say, hey, we want this type of rail so we can do this. So that's a direct influence from the competitive shooting world. And as far as like personal equipment, there is a balance you've got to maintain uh, when you're rigging up for combat and that's retention. So there's a lot of great, you know, competition style holsters and mag pouches out there, but if they can't hold up to, you know, running, falling, wrestling with a dude and not have your gear become a yard sale and sling out, uh, then that's something you got to look for. So as far as, you know, running that type of gear, there's definitely, I would say a a difference, you know, the holsters I use in competitive shooting, I can't carry on a mission because they wouldn't, they wouldn't last me rolling around with a dude if he's trying to go for a gun grab. So that's, that's, that's the retention piece. So we're talking something like, all right, this has to have the hood that retracts on and keeps it in until you need to versus the open top, super fast to draw from kind of holster. Yep. And your, your angled mag pouches, uh, that, you know, uh, mechanically, uh, you know, allow you to draw, you know, your magazine smoother, uh, you can get away with some stuff like that, but again, you got to have good retention cause, uh, your stuff's going to stay on you. So I try, actually I do the reverse. So uh, for the longest time, I would run my duty style belt in three gun. There's a lot of old, old photos of me. I'm running a war belt in three gun. So I would be 
I would train with the belt I'm going to run in the tactical world. I would just throw shotgun caddies on it and things like that. And that's how I handled that issue. So I kept my gear that I used duty style. Uh, I kept it and I brought it over into the competitive shooting world just so I could get more practice on it. And you see a lot of SF guys do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guys that shoot matches, I've seen guys run plate carriers just because they want to practice uh, when they go shoot matches. Mm-hmm. I think it comes down to what would be the intent of you training. Is it just to win the competition or is it to get better at what you actually do for a living? If that's the same thing. So it makes sense that you want to train with the stuff you're actually going to have to carry. Yes. Uh, now there's a lot of guys that, you know, shoot matches and they go into it going, oh, I just want to get some practice. I want to do well. So I, when I go to matches, I, my head's in wanting to shoot well. So I don't totally stay tactical. I mean, I want to place well. So you do have to have, you know, certain gear to do well in competitive shooting. Mm-hmm. If you show up with a bone stock M4, you know, your, your individual skills only going to get you so far against these tricked out race rifles. Mm-hmm. So you've got to play the game a little bit if you want to do well. Okay. Um, so one of the things I think you wrote another article, uh, you said you shot your first PRS match and you got to use the game changer bag. Do you see that is also kind of influential on maybe what goes on in the tactical world? Yes. And actually after I shot that match, I, I reached out to a lot of my buddies who are you know, way more, uh, smart on sniper operations than I am. Some of them are for it and some are against it, but just looking at, you know, my background, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, I've got an old school Harris bipod that I can throw on my, my rifle and I used, I brought it with me at the match and didn't end up using it. And that's just what I grew up with using in the militaries. You want to support your gun, throw a Harris bipod on there. Mm-hmm. After using the game changer bag, you know, me personally, I was like, wow, this thing's way more stable. It forms to whatever you're going to rest it on. And if you don't want to carry the weight, just empty it out and you can fill it with sand wherever you set up at. So, you know, me, I will, you know, Bi- fixed bipod you gotta lug around in your rifle or a bag that you can keep filled up uh or you can empty it and fill it as you go that i think is way more practical at forming around whatever object you can rest it on i would go with a game changer bag so one of the things i i've seen this trend happening around social media and the internet and youtube uh, if you consider you to be social media but where i see People who are showing clearly like competition level, I'm going to run around super fast and shoot at lots of targets. And then people are are spinning that as tactical training. So just to kind of context, I I remember you had a quote talking about for CQB in particular, that you have speed, surprise, violence of action. But if you don't have surprise and speed's going to get you killed, do you, do you think there's a problem here where people lack context on what they're seeing online? Uh, there is, and I think that that has to do with ever since YouTube became, you know, the uh, great media format, you know, you have good and bad with it. And unfortunately, a lot of these, there's a lot of people that are now instant tactical instructors and they're producing, you know, they're making these videos and they're basing on training they've gotten from other people. They have zero real tactical training background. But because they're a pretty good shooter, they're now saying, hey, this is what I do and this is what I would do in tactical scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Based on what? So I, there's a lot of I think a lot of that and that's been going around, you know, ever since YouTube really hit the scene. What is it that you think people don't get or don't understand from watching YouTube videos? Like, what are they actually really missing that says, like, hey, you actually need to get trained on this? Well, I wouldn't say it's it's something they're missing. Um, I think you just have to, you know, be subjective when you watch these videos. And 
a lot of them are entertaining a lot. You know, I'm not going to poo poo all these, you know, everybody's videos. There's a lot of great information you can watch from YouTube videos. Cal Lamb, really, I consider him the pioneer of tactical shooting videos done well. You know, 10 years ago, we threw up some drills, a 2-2-2 drill and some other drills. And he set them to a standard of a pro timer. And, you know, I I think that was, you know, incredible because for the first time you had a, a guy putting out videos that had quantified, you know, drills that you can measure your level and say, you know, it was not pass or fail. He's just like, hey, these are times you need to look for. So I think, you know, you carry that over to today. You ought to be looking for videos like that. You know, guys that can back up the drill, either they can explain it, why it works or like, you know, Kyle Lamb in his older videos, you know, he throws out a time standard for like the two, two, two drill. The goal is to shoot two shots on three targets each in under two seconds. And he, he goes out and he demonstrates it. And then he talks about how he did it. So he's, he's showing you something to work towards and a goal besides just saying, hey, a good tactical shooter can, you know, shoot two shots on three targets really fast. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, now he's applied a standard to work towards. So I think when you're, wa- you're going out and you're watching YouTube videos, just look for that. Or again, if you know if they're talking about, hey, you know, when you reload, do it like this because that's going to save your life. Well, I need a little bit more explanation than that. Like when you do a reload like this, you know, do it because it, you know, it does this or this or this for you. Look for the explanations behind the techniques. So do you have advice for anybody uh, who is interested in getting tactical training to what to look for in their in their instructor? Well, I think you have to break it down to, you know, what are you looking for in the training itself? So that's the first thing somebody should really address. Do I want to become a better shooter and just shoot better? Or am I truly looking for, you know, tactical training? Because if you just want to shoot better, you don't need a tactical guy to show you how to shoot better. There's, you know, great competition only instructors. Uh, I've had the, you know, the benefit because of the units I was in to go and shoot and train with some of the best shooters in the world. Shooters like Todd Jarrett, Ernest Langdon, all these guys who are, you know, pro competitive shooters, zero tactical background. Except for Ernest Langdon, he's a prior Marine. But, you know, when we go to these guys, we're not looking for tactics. We're looking for, Hey, you can shoot, you know, six shots in a second and a half and keep them on target. How do you do that? And that's what we're looking for. Now on the flip side, if you are looking for straight tactical training, uh, I, I think in this day and age, if you're not going to somebody who has actual experience, you're doing yourself a disjustice. You know, there's there's so many combat vets out there that, you know, are now in the tactical instruction world. Uh, you ought to be seeking them out. And it doesn't have to be military, police, law enforcement. But if they don't have real world experience, then what are they basing it on? And that that a lot of that is, you know, tactical theory. Well, I learned this way because this tactical guy said it's going to be this way. So now I'm going to show you. Well, what quantifies that? And, you know, I call that tactical dribble. And that's how a lot of these old mantras keep, you know, getting, you know, pushed on the tactical community. Like you're going to instantly go to caveman or don't do this because it's going to get you killed. Well, what is that based on? Is it just based on you hearing it from another tactical guy or is that something you've seen? I think that's actually a really interesting point. The kind of another thing that popped into mind as you were saying that was, uh, do you ever see the issues with techniques that people start ingraining on the range, but then they don't really get that context behind it or even execute it right? So uh, the two that come to mind to me are uh, the first one, 
that got really trendy for a while was finish a string of fire and then quickly dart your head left and right as if you're searching for something, but you're not actually looking long enough to find anything. And the other one would be, uh, before I do something, let me rotate my gun, my rifle, 45, look at the, the bolt carrier chamber, and then do something else. Yes, and that's why I say if you're going to take tactical training, you know, train with somebody that actually has real-world experience. And I'm talking tactical training because, you know, all these these little things come up, the, the scan left and right, and I've been in classes where they, they want to do it. And the, the, the biggest trend I've seen right now is the – shoot a target and then dip your muzzle and pretend you're following the target to the ground as if it had fallen. So you're practicing keeping your eyes on target, which really you're the way your mind works. Trust me, you're, you're going to be, you know, fixed on a target when you shoot at it. Cause again, that's why the people who were saying, Hey, you need to look left and right to break that target fixation. But now you have people saying, no, pretend to follow the the target down. So you have target fixation. Well, which is it? Well, from experience, you know, I'll tell you, I think they're both not the best techniques and they're reinforcing the wrong thing. So, yes, there's a lot of, uh, you know, trends that come out there. And if you look at who's pushing these trends, there are people whose basis for tactical training is they've trained with all these different people, but they've never actually applied that in, uh, in real life. If I'm kind of rewinding a little bit then to let's take the average person who is now interested in shooting and they've never shot a competition before they've never had any formal training um maybe they've got like a safety class under their belt how would you suggest that they start that progression go to your local matches uh that is the best way and you're going to get you know if you show up as, as a new shooter at a local match uh, regardless if it's, you know, USPSA, IDPA, some other, you know, handgun sport or even three gun, you know, dive into the deep end, you know, you let people know you're a new shooter, you know, shooters are going to help you along. They want you to succeed in being safe. And that's your first goal when you go to a match is get through all the stages safely where you don't get kicked out for violating, you know, a 180 rule or some other safety thing and, you know, try and get good hits. Uh, it, it just just take the plunge and shoot a match. Uh, a lot of people will be like, "Well, I want to come watch a match." I think you know, just dive right in and shoot a local level match, and you know, and then you'll see, hey, the techniques I have right now, hey, I'm on the right track, or you know, hey, I've been doing shooting this way forever, and I just got like I did, I just got crushed at this match. Okay, what do I need to improve on? And, you know, pick one thing and go to your next match and try and improve on that one thing and then continue on from there. I think that's an important point is it's it's competing against yourself. Is it pick the thing you want to improve and just try to do better at that and don't worry about the scoreboard as much. Yes. And if you, you know, it's like like with any new shooter, if you sit there and you try and go over all the different fundamentals to a new shooter all at once in one day and on the flat range, they're only going to remember one or two things and you're probably going to task saturate them. So for a, somebody going to their first match ever, you know, if you, you know, shoot your first stage, uh, regardless of how well you did, uh, you could do great. Who knows? Uh, for the next stage, again, just try and improve one thing like, okay, I had problems and I bobbled my reloads for my next stage. I'm just going to take my time and I'll, you know, I'll try and get my reloads a little bit smoother. Uh, or if your whole match was horrible, then think about, you know, what made that match horrible? Did I, am I, am I just not able to shoot 
at speed like these guys, well, the next match I'll go to, I'll work on just picking up my pace, maybe one more shot per second. You know, the average shooter, you know, who practices regularly can handle about two shots a second with a pistol at a match going into it. Your pros are shooting around four or five shots a second. So uh, just work towards, hey, over the, the course of this summer, if I'm going to attend five or six matches, I'm going to try and get up to three shots a second on average. You know, pick a small goal and work towards it. Do you have any practice techniques, especially for people who maybe are limited um, with no ranges nearby or they don't have a like, very long range they can go to? I'm thinking of like living in North Virginia, most places around here are 25 yards, maybe 50, unless you want to dr- drive an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, definitely buy a pro timer is the first thing you need to do. Uh, that way you can, when you're dry firing, you can actually, you know, measure and quantify. So, you know, right now, if you're a, if you're a new shooter and you want to go to a match, uh, you know, get up, get a shot timer, uh, where you can set up split times and just dry firing, see how long it takes you to, you know, draw your pistol out of a holster and, you know, dry fire into a target. If you don't know that going into a match, how do you know, you know, how you're going to perform? So there's a lot you can do in dry fire and, you know, for limited, you know, spaces. Uh, When I go out and I shoot, regardless of the size of the range, I try and do as many tasks as I can in one drill as possible. So instead of, you know, just shooting, say, you know, firing, standing still, at a target doing, you know, multiple shots in the A zone. That's one task. But if I work in a reload, that's now two tasks. If I work on just simple left and right movement while I'm reloading and shooting, I'm now doing three tasks just on a single target. And as soon as you incorporate multiple targets, now you're doing another task. So even on a 25 meter range, you, you know, if you have the ability to set up two or three targets, you could be doing five or six tasks involved in shooting in one session. You don't need a, a ton of space for it. Uh, do, what do you think of the idea that you should always have a plan going into a practice session? Yes. Uh, otherwise, you, you, you just kind of, you know, you just kind of, you're just shooting rounds into a berm. I think you definitely need to, again, it's all goes towards, you know, how, do, how can I quantify any sort of improvement or where I need to work on? So if I know already that I can do, you know, say two shots out of the holster at seven yards, you know, in 1.5 seconds, okay, now I need to either work on increasing that distance so I can do, say, two shots in that same time standard now at 10 yards, or I'll work on at seven yards trying to get three shots out in that same time standard. So there should be a goal of always trying to depress and improve yourself. Otherwise, you know, you'll fall into that trap of stagnating. And this goes back to my very first match. You know, I was brought up to a certain level of marksmanship ability in special forces. And it wasn't until I shot my first match that I realized, wow, I'm really not at a standard where I thought I was. Do you think um, from a marksmanship standpoint, is there some kind of standard you think someone should be striving for before they show up to a match or, or go to a class? No, uh, I, I don't like I don't I don't like setting standards because that that makes people think that's a pass or fail mentality. Like, oh my god, I can't I can't draw and get two shots out in a second and a half. Well, in combat, it doesn't really matter because if I get my gun out and shoot the guy first, and it took three seconds, it doesn't matter. I won the fight. So I don't like looking at pass or fail standards. As long as you have safe gun handling skills 
and your basic, you know, all the basic tasks involved in keeping that weapon system going. Like I can clear a simple jam. I can take my gun out of the holster and put some shots on target. You know, I know how to mount a rifle. I know how to, you know, clear a simple double feed. I know how to keep my muzzle in a safe direction. And I know some basic reloads. You don't have to be the world's best. Then you can go into a match. That's the reason why most shooting sports, you know, they have a novice level. So if you show up at a match and there's, you know, 100 shooters at the match, you're not shooting against those 100 shooters. You're only being graded against the other novices. So it could be 100 people there, but really you could only be being graded against five other dudes who this is their first match also. So don't let that, you know, the intimidation of all, all these guys right here with all this great gear and, you know, and all these sponsored shirts and this and that, you know, they're going, they're there in a whole nother league that you don't have to worry about in, until you start moving up the ladder. Uh, that's going to the first competition side of it. How does this, you know, progression work for someone who's say they want to get their carry permit or they want to do some carbine training? Um, what does that progression look like for them as well? Or is it related to like is it is it separate or is it a different track? How does how does that look in your mind? Well, if you're you, I think really the easiest thing to do, regardless if your goal is to be you know shoot competition, or you just want to have you know know you have competence, and in, in carrying a firearm for defensive purposes, is uh, you know shoot with people that are better than you. So if you have you know buddies or family members that have already been doing this for a while or, you know, carrying a gun for 10 years, uh, shoot with them. You know, it's like with anything, if you're, if you're training with people that are, are your skill level, then you collectively, you're probably not going to improve upon each other, but you know, you go out and you shoot with somebody who, you know, can really bring it on the range. That's going to, you know, press upon you to try and excel, to increase your level a little bit. So, you know, just find people who love to shoot and shoot with them. Okay. So I've got uh, two more questions here. Uh, and these actually came from a couple of our listeners and readers. Um, so the first one is, do you ever feel like there's unrealistic stages that show up in competitions? And the context he gave here was, you know, has there ever been a situation you can think of in the real world where someone is shooting defensively with a rifle from inside a car? Well, there's definitely unrealistic stages in the competitive shooting world because, again, you know, competitive shooting is a sport. So even even IDPA, which is supposed to mimic, you know, daily situations, you could be confronted in a tactical scenario. Anytime you apply a shot timer to something, to me, it's a game. So, I mean, and there's, you know, at major matches, they're going to do anything to try and make make it as hard as they can. So I, I view it purely from a game standpoint. Uh, you get into tactical scenarios, yes, you can be shooting around cars, in cars, out of cars, into cars, filled with bad guys. So, again, that goes back to what type of tactical training are, are you looking for? So, I mean, if you've already taken several classes that consist of, you know, mainly flat range shooting and you've got some decent skills, then look at the alternative training out there, which is, you know, these uh, courses that involve shooting around cover, such as vehicles, you know, intro to CQB style courses. So, you know, definitely, definitely there is a progression uh, and there's the instructors out there uh, that can take you there. I think you just need to vet them and make sure that, you know, they have the skills and they have what you're looking for in the uh, tactical instruction. All right, and then my last question that I asked everybody, 
if you could have people stop doing something right now, what would that be? It would have to be the pretend to follow the target down with the muscle. You're not doing anything. And that begs the question, okay, if I shoot one target and I pretend to follow it down, what do I do when I'm presented 10 targets? Do I shoot it, the target, follow it down, go to the next target, shoot to follow it down, or I shoot them all and pretend to follow them all down? And that starts to show the absurdity of that, you know, that technique that's starting to develop out there. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk to me today. If anyone wants to find you, where can they find you? I am on Instagram at Modern Tactical, and they can find me on my Facebook, which is Modern Tactical Shooting. All right. Great. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about my key takeaways from this interview with Jeff Gerwich. I hope you enjoyed it because I know I enjoyed having the conversation with him. Now, if I had to narrow this down to, let's say, two major things. Number one is that a lot of people out there are saying the wrong things about competition techniques. We all know that competition is a game. That's why there's a timer. But that doesn't mean that the techniques you learn and practice while doing it are not valuable. Jeff gave the example of reload techniques. If you are going to win a match, you're going to learn the bestest. <laughs> Sorry, that's not a word. You're going to learn the best and fastest ways to reload a pistol or your gun or manipulate your weapons or find ways to get on the target and get to positions. How is that not useful to you in a defensive situation? And I know there's the argument out there about, well, you need to go to gross motor skills because your mind goes to a caveman. Well, I agree with Jeff in saying that that's really a matter of training. And if you practice enough, if you do your daily dry practice, as we have a, a marksman challenge for, you're going to ingrain those movements into your mind, and then you're going to do it right when the pressure is on. Now, my second big takeaway from this interview was also knowing who you're getting training from. I will admit that I have gotten somewhat jaded against some some trainers in the past or, or Instagram personalities who really focus on shooting fast and clean and competitive styles and then trying to teach that defensively. And I think that's actually my problem is that, like Jeff said, you want to be able to put things into context. Really great competitive shooters can teach you some really great shooting techniques. On the other hand, if you're going to learn defensive shooting techniques, you want to learn from somebody who's actually been there and done that and can tell you this is how it's going to work. So know who you're getting training from. Seek out the people who can do what you need. All right, that is going to be it for this episode, guys. As a reminder, it is March as I'm recording this, and the Marksman community, the Marksman's Quarter, is about to go live. Now, if you remember from last week, the Marksman's Quarter is a place for people just like you to come together and start improving on your skills as a community to find that accountability, to set those goals, and start walking down the marksman's path. And it's only going to be open for registration a few times per year. So if you want to get in in the first wave, go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash community and make sure you sign up for that waiting list so you are the first in the door. All right, that is it for me this week, guys. I will catch you next week. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you later.